Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Summer is winding down. Kids are back in school. The pumpkin spice lattes are here. And if your local store is overzealous enough, you've probably seen some Christmas decorations. But it's still very much summer. And summer 2023 is unlike any other. Literally. It's the planet's hottest year on record since humanity has been keeping a record of that kind of thing. And look, I know we do this sweltering heat song and dance just about every year, but this year really is different. Across the country, across the world, new records are being set. Tokyo reported record-breaking temperatures on Thursday, making it the worst June heat wave in Japan since records began nearly 150 years ago. Brutally, brutally high temperatures all the way from Texas to Rhode Island. About 20 cities in Italy have been put under red alert. In India, at least 11 people died of heat stroke this week. And, to be frank, we weren't built for this. Our cities, our bodies, or even where we work. It's... Definitely exhausting on the body to be working during these temperatures, whether you're inside or outside. That's Jake Frederico. He's an environment and climate reporter at the Arizona Republic. We had a farm worker in Yuma, which is in the southwestern corner of the state, who earlier this year during that heat wave collapsed twice in the field and then died later that day. I'm John Glenn Hill, and today on The Weeds, the lack of protection for workers in extreme heat, and the regulatory body whose job it is to fix it. We begin in Arizona. In his reporting, Jake explores the dangers of heat, including how deadly it can be working on our changing planet. I sat down with him to talk about that and also how they're handling the heat locally. Phoenix is obviously known for being quite hot, but this year has been well above average. We had that really long stretch of heat in July that was 31 days of temperatures at or above 110 degrees. I believe our daily average high for July was 114 degrees. Typically in July, that's 106 is our normal high. So we were well above average. July was really, really miserable. You know, we like to say in Phoenix, we have reverse seasonal depression. So instead of the winter months being hard to go outside and really miserable, it's the summer months where you don't want to go outside. You're really tired. You don't want to move around. Your body really feels the heat. We're not really prepared for these extremes. And a big problem in Phoenix is our urban heat island effect. 
Anyone who's been to Phoenix knows it's a grid city. It's very spread out. There's a lot of hard surfaces, so a lot of asphalt, a lot of parking lots. We don't really have a lot of public transit, so a lot of driving goes on. So our infrastructure there tends to actually amplify the heat during the summer months because it's taking in that heat and then trapping it and readmitting it at night, which is making it hotter. You see first responders out during the heat wave and they're trying to assist people that are living on the street, assisting the elderly that, you know, are succumbing to the heat. They are experiencing heat-related illness. They're experiencing heat stroke. I literally would go out every day during July, whether that be going to work, going to the grocery store, and actually seeing first responders, you know, attending to people on the street who had actually passed out from the heat. Can you talk about some of the ways the city of Phoenix has tried to mitigate this problem locally? I mean, like, for instance, the chief heat officer position. What are you all doing to help, you know, accommodate in this time? The city does have a really great program. They have the Office of Heat Mitigation and Response. And really what that's designed to do is prepare residents for heat. So they work year-round. You know, a lot of their work is done during the cooler months to prepare for when it gets really hot before it's too late. So they do a lot of things. They do outreach, obviously. They do education. They work to plant more trees along city streets. um, And they are looking to do that in areas where it'd be more equitable. They also provide cooling shelters, water refill stations. They have a really comprehensive map that shows where you can go in the city if you need to cool down, if you need to get inside, if you need to find someplace to rest and get water. So they do a lot of work to help the citizens as much as they can. But obviously, you're at the mercy of Mother Nature when it comes to these extreme temperatures. You talked about, you know, people experiencing homelessness and how they're dealing in the heat and also lower-income neighborhoods and planting trees there. And I think... For a lot of people who aren't in those situations, they may not even be thinking of that when it comes to heat. I mean, what are some of these blind spots we're seeing when we're looking at the impact of extreme heat? You know, you said it, you know, the unhoused population is going to be the most vulnerable to the extreme heat. Obviously, they're going to get the brunt of it. Last year in Maricopa County, there were 425 heat-related deaths in the county. I believe one third of that came from the unhoused population. You know, that is kind of a reason why in recent years, if you look at heat mortality in the county and in the city, it has really ballooned in recent years because our unhoused population is expanding. So that's putting more people in vulnerable positions, especially when you're looking at temperatures like we're seeing in Phoenix going up to 115, nearing 120 in the summer. When we're talking about low-income neighborhoods, it's a very similar issue. They might not have access to air conditioning in these neighborhoods. The city is looking to expand into areas that have less canopy cover. But, I mean, when you compare the neighborhoods, it's really stark. And the wealthier neighborhoods just have much more canopy cover. And obviously in a city like Phoenix, we don't really have humidity. You know, everyone always says it's, it's a dry heat. So... When you're in the sun and then when you go into the shade, I mean, there's a 10 degree difference almost immediately. You can feel the relief the second you step into the shade. When we think of climate change, I think a lot of the time we think of the impact on the planet. You know, the raising temperatures, you think of, you know, what's happening to biodiversity. But what does heat do to the human body? Heat has major implications on public health. 
There's the obvious examples where we have things like dehydration is very common, dizziness when you're feeling the symptoms of heat stroke, heat stress. In Phoenix, during the summer, you know, we see people who actually fall on the street or fall while outside and they actually burn themselves. They get third degree burns on the asphalt or concrete just because it is so hot. So those are some of the more obvious examples, but there are longer term impacts as well. There is a link between being in prolonged temperatures and an increase of developing heart disease. And then people who already have heart disease are at greater risk of heart attack or stroke during hotter months. I spoke with the Pinal County medical examiner last month, and you know he told me that deaths across the board go up during extreme heat. So during the hotter months, they do see an increase of people coming in. And those might not be things that are directly related to heat. They see more overdose deaths. They see more people who've died of heart attack. They see people who have died of suicide more. And there are links as well that say that during extreme heat, mental illness is worsened and suicides go up. So there's so much we don't know about it. And the impacts of extreme heat and deaths from extreme heat are most likely severely undercounted across the country and across the board. How is this impacting the workforce? I think both for people working indoors and for people who are working outdoors. Obviously, the risks are amplified if you're working outdoors or if you're working someplace without AC. The worst case scenario is that people working outdoors are actually dying from the heat. There's obviously a link when you're working in temperatures that are so hot for such a long time, it's going to impact the body. Like we said, you know, you do become at greater risk for developing heart disease, for developing other types of chronic illnesses when you are exposed to the heat for so long. Shorter term impacts would obviously be heat stroke, things like feeling really dizzy, passing out, becoming dehydrated. And, you know, a big issue with that is when we're talking about outdoor workers, and farm workers specifically, a lot of them don't have access to healthcare. So when they're out in these temperatures for really long periods of time, it likely will have impacts on their long-term health. You know, we might not know immediately what those impacts are, but down the line, it really could impact their health in a serious way. And they might not have access to healthcare the same way that someone who is working indoors or who may be documented and you know that does raise a lot of concern for for what could happen to these populations. Are we seeing the state and local businesses accommodate workers for these kinds of changes at all? Yeah, so our governor Katie Hobbs, she passed an ordinance in July and what that basically did was it gave the state's OSHA powers to go into workplaces usually for outdoor workers, so construction workers, farm workers, when the National Weather Service declares a heat advisory or a heat warning, and it gives them power to go in there, make sure workers are getting adequate breaks, adequate rest, access to water, shade. So that was kind of the latest thing that happened. However, there is no state regulation that says that workers are entitled to paid breaks for shade, for rest, for water. So, you know, there is a logistical concern of the state's ability to really regulate all of these businesses. I mean, you can't go to every business and, and make sure that they're giving shade and water. She also declared a heat-related emergency during July, during the heat wave. 
but only for three counties. When it comes to the cold and flooding and fires, we have all these systems in place. And I'm just wondering why that isn't the case for extreme heat. You know, we know there's no federal standard for extreme heat, but even so, we also know that people can and have died from heat exposure. So why don't we have a system to mitigate that? You know, I always say that heat is a slow-moving killer. When you're looking at things maybe like flooding from a hurricane, storm surge from a hurricane or a fire, those deaths kind of stack up very quickly. And we can see the immediate damage and death toll from those events. In heat, it's much slower to count the deaths. We're not seeing a mass amount of bodies pile up in one day. Rather, they kind of stack up over time. FEMA does not see heat as a natural disaster. It won't provide federal funding for it. So that's why this summer, actually, our mayor, Kate Galeo, and one of our state representatives, Ruben Galeo, they're calling on FEMA. They said, we want to have an emergency declaration here so that way we can free up funding, get some federal funding into the city to help mitigate extreme temperatures and help prepare for the extreme temperatures that we know we are going to see. And that's a really important tool when looking at mitigating extreme weather. I mean, over the last 50 years, extreme weather events have become more frequent because of climate change. We know that. But actually, deaths from these weather events has decreased steadily. So less people are dying from things like hurricanes, flooding, and wildfire, even though they are rising in numbers. And a study suggests that the reason that is, is because of early warning signs and detection. And that is because of federal funding. So to maybe bring some of those dollars into Arizona could help for better detection, early warning signs, better mitigation and preparation before the heat actually comes. So that way we can take people out of harm's way and hopefully decrease our death count from heat. All right, Jake Federico, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. You may be thinking, when it comes to work, there's got to be some sort of regulation when it comes to heat, right? Some way that assures us protection from the elements. Well... Not quite. It turns out there's no federal heat standard for workplaces, and the agency that would set one moves notoriously slow. After the break, why climate change is quicker than OSHA. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. 
You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. This message comes from Apple Card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA. Member FDIC. Terms apply. We're back. Before the break, we talked about extreme heat and how we are and aren't adapting as our climate changes. One of those aspects is the workplace. And to get into how that's regulated, I talked to David Michaels. David is a professor at the Milken Institute of Public Health at George Washington University. But prior to that, he ran the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, commonly known as OSHA. David is the longest-serving former head of OSHA, so he knows it forwards and backwards. Before we really got into the regulation aspect of things, I wanted him to walk us through the history. The Occupational Safety and Health Administration is based on the law that was passed in 1970. Essentially, it says that employers are responsible for providing safe workplaces, workplaces that don't injure workers or make them sick. OSHA's job is to make sure employers do that. The bill that gave us OSHA was signed into law by President Richard Nixon. It was intended to address a grim reality facing many workers at the time. The American workplace, really starting with industrialization, was carnage. Thousands and thousands of workers were killed on the job every year in the United States. Many were disabled. They had no ability to say, make this job safe, unless they were in a union which could negotiate better conditions. In the 1960s, the civil rights movement pushed forward this idea that people had rights. And that combined with organizing by labor unions and the Democratic Congress pushed through this law, which said for the first time ever, employers had this responsibility to provide a safe workplace. And so we see a bill that represents in its culmination the American system at its best. Democrats, Republicans, the House, the Senate, the White House, business, labor, all cooperating in a common goal. A very early head of OSHA, one appointed actually uh, by a Republican administration, said he looked at OSHA as in addition to the Bill of Rights, the idea that workers have the right to a safe workplace, that which was revolutionary in 1970. Yeah, I think that's I think that's really interesting the way, you know, we don't really think of work a lot of the time when we think of the civil rights movement or civil rights in general. But the March on Washington was the March on Washington for jobs and freedom. It feels like, I don't know, the workplace has kind of been central to all of this. Absolutely. And look, most workers spend a significant portion of their waking hours at work Work shapes their lives in so many ways. And our system for taking care of people once they're injured, the workers' compensation system, is really a failure. And we could have a whole separate uh, issue of the weeds just to discuss that. 
But we had a system where you would have worker after worker who was made sick, who was injured, who was disabled, who was paralyzed. And really, they had very little assistance. And so we finally recognized the best thing to do here is to prevent those injuries and illnesses from occurring. And so the OSHA law was written by very well-meaning, though I think naive congressmen and senators in some ways, to say that uh, we'll have a government agency that will make sure employers do the right thing. And that's the way it's structured. So I'm interested in the kinds of regulations that OSHA has. You know, what are the kinds of workplace safety standards that we're talking about? And when did we get them? Because I I just, the work landscape has changed so much since 1970. Like, I am sitting here talking to you on a laptop. And in 1970, people would have been like, what What are you talking about? What What is this? When the OSHA law was passed, it was estimated that 37 workers were killed every day in the American workplace. Now we're down to 14 every day with more than twice as many workers. So we've improved tremendously, though 14 deaths a day is still far too many. OSHA has health standards on chemical exposures, for example. When OSHA first began, workers could be exposed to asbestos very easily in many workplaces. So early OSHA standards on chemicals Benzene, which causes leukemia, asbestos, have had a big impact on preventing chronic disease. OSHA also has standards for construction that says, for example, if you send someone up on a roof to do certain types of work, they have to have fall protection, because if not, they could fall to the ground and be killed. Or, or trench protection. When you dig a trench and you put workers in, that trench can collapse and crush them. OSHA also has regulations about keeping track of injuries. Employers are supposed to do that. And now we have a new regulation that actually I, I put out saying that the data that employers collect about injuries and illnesses now have to be sent to OSHA and OSHA puts them on the web so everybody can see what's going on in certain workplaces. How often are new standards for OSHA set? Like, when are we seeing these standards develop? Is it like, okay, once a year, we're all going to get together figure out what's going on in workplaces, you know, change some things up. Like, how, how does this happen? OSHA standards take years to develop. I issued a standard for silica exposure that should have come out in the 1970s, but OSHA didn't work on it. And finally, 1997 started working on it. And I issued it in 2016. So that was a 19-year standard. If OSHA puts out one or two new health standards a year, that's a lot. But what that means is that there are many, many significant hazards, and especially new hazards, which OSHA does not have a standard for because it takes so long. And OSHA is a small agency and doesn't have the resources to put out a lot of standards. How many of the current standards we have are new? Because you talked about that 19-year wait. And then I wonder, are there standards that we have that are out of date where it's like, okay, like maybe we can loosen up on this, but we need to tighten up here? Like, how's that all working? Well, when you think about health standards, standards for chemical exposures, more than 90% of those standards date to the 1960s or before and they are hopelessly out of date. N-hexane, for example, it's a chemical, you may not have heard of that, but if you've ever smelled rubber cement, that was N-hexane. And kids used to get high, still get high probably, um, sniffing glue. And that's hexane because hexane causes neurological symptoms. In other words, it gets you high. The OSHA standard, the permissible level in workplaces is 500 parts per million, but you could have symptoms at 400 parts per million. So OSHA standards are really old. 
OSHA has issued less than 40 new standards in the 50 years since it started. That's in terms of health exposures. And it doesn't have standards for some of the really important chemicals out there or the standards are way, way out of date. I'm curious how the regulation process works. Like, how do we go from thinking, hmm, this this might be a problem to getting a rule on the books? OSHA has a, a more than 40-step process. It requires collecting information from stakeholders, from employers, from workers, from unions, from environmentalists and scientists, going through all sorts of internal processes, having special meetings with small business representatives, and then estimating the costs and the benefits of a possible standard and determining whether what OSHA is thinking about is economically feasible and whether it's technologically feasible. It's a huge number of steps before OSHA can propose a rule. And then when OSHA proposes a rule in the Federal Register, it goes through another process where it collects comments and then it has a big public hearing and then has more comments afterwards. Because the idea is OSHA wants to build the evidentiary base. So everybody who presents at the hearing and all sorts of stakeholders present, anybody who presents can then cross-examine anybody else who presents. It's a long process. It's a far too long process. But you do get a tremendous amount of information on which to base the standard. Compared to other agencies, is it is it that much red tape and bureaucracy, or is this OSHA-specific? Because, I mean, the federal government is well known for uh, moving at, let's say, a glacial pace. But is OSHA in particular, um, you know, does it get, get caught up in all of that? Yes, but it's not really a bureaucratic problem. It's the way the law was written and the way it's been interpreted originally by the agency and then by multiple court decisions. SOCIA has to go through all these steps. And and they got some added challenges. When Newt Gingrich and the contract with America came in in 1994-1995, Congress passed a special law only for EPA and OSHA, saying they had to have special meetings with small business representatives because they're disproportionately affected by standards. And that adds close to another year to the process. And that was just done really you know, to make sure the small businesses got an additional bite at the apple, but there's no special process for workers or community members, anything like that. I want to get into the language of OSHA and what it actually says. And I think One of the more important things to understand in it is this thing called the General Duty Clause. What is that and how does it work? So the OSHA law has a section that says every employer has the responsibility to provide a workplace free of recognized serious hazards. That's a general duty. And that's been interpreted to apply to any hazard. OSHA has a standard for asbestos, let's say, or for machine guarding, but there are many, many hazards for which OSHA has no standard. I, I like to give the example of the um, the case that got the most press during the more than seven years that I was head of OSHA, which is SeaWorld and the, the killer whale that killed Don Brancho, who was a uh, trainer. Now, OSHA doesn't have a standard on killer whales, and there are lots of hazards, but that's an obvious one. So OSHA said under the general duty clause, SeaWorld should have known that killer whales can kill people. In fact, this whale had already killed people. And there was a technological and economically feasible way to avoid that hazard. In other words, don't let the trainer 
get in the water with this. So when there is no standard, OSHA can issue a general duty clause citation. But it's a tremendous amount of work, and it's a pretty high burden for the inspector and for the agency. And it has no precedential value. A standard says to all employers, this is what you must do. But when you have a general duty clause violation, you can be fined, and the employer has to address that problem in the future. But it doesn't impact any other employer. So it's not a particularly useful way to address workplace hazards. The reason we're having this conversation is it has been a hot summer. Like anyone who has been outside can tell you that the temperatures have just, you know, skyrocketed compared to where they were in the past. And we know that OSHA doesn't have a heat standard when it comes to workplaces. But I'm curious about the other areas that OSHA doesn't have rules about. Can you give us some examples of, you know, things that maybe lack a threshold and what that looks like in real life? Well, the biggest hazard, the most widespread hazard that OSHA has no standard on is what we call ergonomics, which is the sort of relationship of people's body to their work. We know that many jobs have repetitive motion, often involving force or difficult posture, and that can really ruin your back, your shoulder, your arm. OSHA moved toward, actually issued an ergonomic standard But another thing that the contract with America and Newt Gingrich's folks did was to put through a law called the Congressional Review Act, which allowed Congress to overturn government regulations. And OSHA, that OSHA ergonomic standard was the first time that was used. We have no OSHA rule that says you can't make people do work that destroys your arms or your shoulders. You know, OSHA actually has a very good standard on bloodborne pathogens because during the HIV AIDS epidemic, Congress actually passed a law saying, OSHA, you've got to go issue a standard quickly. You've got to overcome some of these issues we talked about. And OSHA issued a standard to protect workers in healthcare facilities primarily who could be exposed to blood products. And, you know, if you remember the uh, HIV epidemic before 1993-94, when we've had some reasonable treatments, People looked at HIV exposure as a potential death sentence. If you worked in a a hospital, as I did, people were always afraid of a needle stick because you you could get AIDS. OSHA passed a a regulation with all sorts of new requirements. It was a little controversial. It said, for example, that every worker had to wear gloves. That was controversial? (laughs) Dentists actually said that they wouldn't be able to practice dentistry if you made them wear gloves. Oh, my God. I cannot imagine going in a medical facility and someone not having gloves on. And if you go into a any sort of room in a hospital or healthcare facility, you see a, a sharps container uh, on the wall to so you can safely dispose of, of a sharp needle, for example. That's because of the OSHA law. I want to get into who is covered by OSHA because I think, you know, if you don't dig deeper, it's very easy to assume that, like, everyone who works in the United States is covered by OSHA rules and regulations, but that's not the case. And in fact, some states have state OSHA plans, and then others follow the federal rules. What's the difference between those state plans and the federal rules? Why why is there that, you know, uh, difference? (laughs) There, that, great questions. It's very confusing. When the law was passed, 
during the Nixon administration, there was a lot of this discussion about what we called federalism, which is essentially giving states the ability to do work that the federal government could do. The law says if you want to have your own OSHA program as a state, you can do that. It has to be at least as effective as federal OSHA. And there are some states that go well beyond what federal OSHA requires. California has an ergonomic standard, for example. But in terms of coverage, what's interesting about this is federal OSHA does not cover state, county, and municipal employees. In other words, if if you're in a state where OSHA has federal authority over, like Texas or Florida, then if you're a public sector worker in Florida, you have no OSHA coverage. Can you explain sort of that jurisdiction to me? I'm trying to wrap my head around it. So OSHA, the federal law, does that cover private or public sector workers? It covers only private sector workers. Federal workers are covered by federal OSHA because uh, President Jimmy Carter signed an executive order saying, if you're a federal worker, you're covered by OSHA. OSHA covers private sector workers, but not all private sector workers. There's a clause in the OSHA Act that says, if an agency claims to have a program that's comparable to OSHA, they can preempt OSHA. So the Transportation Department has various transportation agencies like the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA. They claim authority over pilots and flight attendants. And they said OSHA has no no authority over them. We subsequently negotiated a relationship. So we had some authority over flight attendants who complained that the FAA claimed authority, but they did nothing for the safety and health of flight attendants. The Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration covers trucks. And so OSHA has no jurisdiction over long-distance truckers. One very big hole out there is farm workers. The EPA claims jurisdiction over pesticide use in the fields. And so you could have farm workers just overdosed with sprayed pesticides, and OSHA has no authority over that. The EPA has gotten a little better on that. For many years, they really did almost nothing for farm workers. During the Obama administration, they issued a standard, the Farm Worker Safety Standard, which gives EPA some authority. It tells the um, farm industry, don't spray workers, keep them safe. There's another real, really shocking hole. There's a uh, what's called a congressional rider, something that goes into the appropriations bill every year that says to OSHA, you can spend no money. In other words, you can do nothing on any farm with 10 or fewer employees. And we would regularly get reports of farm workers, generally migrant workers, often non-English speaking, they come from Latin America, they're working in a farm in Wisconsin or New York State, and they're killed. And if it's a small farm, OSHA can't do any investigation at all, and they certainly can't issue fines. So there are a lot of holes in, in in this authority. It is very difficult to wrap my head around there being no consequences, like even if it's not OSHA. I don't know. I guess we're kind of depending on human decency a little bit. I mean, the theory before OSHA was that you have this insurance system called workers' compensation. And uh, if you injure a lot of workers, your insurance rates go up and that will discourage you from having an unsafe workplace. But we know that 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 system really has failed. And the vast majority of costs of occupational injuries and illnesses are borne by the families of workers and not by the employer and by the insurance industry. We don't even know how many workers are injured every year. So we could have 5 million workers injured every year on the job. And so even with OSHA workers' compensation, we're not 
we're not preventing those from occurring, and that, that's a real problem. So that's how OSHA operates. Can it change? That's up next after the break. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So earlier we talked about the long process that gets us to an OSHA regulation, a new OSHA regulation. Can we kind of talk about the role of the process in all of this? In 2021, the Biden administration ordered OSHA to begin drafting a heat standard. But, you know, as we've said before, things move notoriously slow. Is there a way around that? I think OSHA is moving as fast as they can under current law. You're right now, they're in that process of the small business consultation, and then they have to consider everything they learn before they can even issue a proposal. So at current speed, it's, it's going to take several more years. What Congress can do is Congress can pass a law saying you have to move more quickly and we will allow you to cut certain corners. In other words, you don't have to do these analyses or you can issue an interim rule based on some analyses or preliminary analyses and then issue a final rule down the line. But unless Congress specifically says you can do that, it will take several more years at least. Is there a way to speed up the process using the general duty clause that we talked about earlier? Sadly, no. I mean, the general duty clause is very uh, situation-specific, and it doesn't have any precedential value. Um, OSHA is increasing its enforcement around heat and using the general duty clause more. And you know, one thing that's very useful is when OSHA issues a citation and issues a press release, it impacts employers because they realize they better do something or they risk a citation. In fact, there's a study done by um, a professor at Duke, Matthew Johnson, that showed that every OSHA press release achieves as much employer compliance as 200 inspections. So you, I'm glad you mentioned citations because, you know, we've talked about how OSHA came to be. We talked about the rules that exist. We talked about the rules that don't exist. But how does enforcement work? Like, okay, we have these rules. Someone broke them. Now what? Like, OSHA cannot come to your house and arrest you. What can they do? Correct. I mean, the most powerful thing OSHA has are standards because most employers are law-abiding and big employers have HR departments and attorneys who tell them this is what you have to do. But you have enforcement to make sure that all employers comply with those same rules. 
OSHA can follow up on a complaint, but mostly what OSHA does is they they sort of target different areas and they send inspectors out on a random basis. So if, for example, OSHA said, okay, we're going to go start inspecting oil refineries because there have been some explosions in oil refineries, they've got to put all those facilities into essentially a random number generator and go out and start doing inspections on that basis. But when it does go out there and finds lack of compliance, it can issue a citation, it often does, and then uh, in many cases, especially if it's a particularly egregious problem, we'll issue a, a press release. And that reminds other employers who have not been inspected that they risk an inspection, they risk a fine, and they, most importantly, they risk their workers being hurt unless they abate their hazards. In your opinion, what's the best way to fix enforcement? Is it like, okay, OSHA needs to go on a hiring spree, needs more inspectors? Like how, where, what's the fix in your opinion? I think there are a lot of them. Even if you quadruple the number of inspectors, you still wouldn't be able to get to that many workplaces. So while that wouldn't be a bad thing, it would help. I think the most important thing is probably to increase penalties. Right now, the penalties are pretty low. The fine for a serious violation is about $15,600 right now. It is inflation-adjusted, so it'll go up in the future. A willful violation can be 10 times as high. But in each case, OSHA is required to reduce the size of the fine for small employers and for employers who don't have a bad history, for example. But the size of the penalty impacts an employer in terms of deterrence. If OSHA issues a very large penalty against one employer and they hear other employers hear about They may not do anything if it's a $15,000 fine, but they may do something if it's a $150,000 fine or like the Securities Exchange Commission has if it's a million-dollar fine. The other thing is OSHA has no criminal penalties except in the most severe events. If if OSHA issues what's called a willful citation, in other words, the employer knew about the problem and didn't do about it, and the worker's killed, they can refer it to the Justice Department. Those are very powerful, but other countries have criminal penalties for many sorts of situations where workers are hurt. And what they have in a bunch of countries in Europe and Asia is personal responsibility by members of the boards of directors. If an event happens which should have been prevented and a worker is killed, a member of the board of of directors can be personally criminally responsible. That focuses the attention of these board members, and they take worker protection much more seriously as a result. But we don't have anything like that here. It's it's Conversations about regulation are always really fascinating because, you know, there are always going to be people who fall into the camp of, like, we need to be doing more. We need to give this some teeth. We need to, like, you know, do X, Y, Z. And there are others who say, specifically those who are in industry and trade organizations who are like, hey, I see what you're saying, but regulations cost money. They create undue burdens. Like, this is actually making it harder to make people safe. I'm curious how you approach that conversation and those critiques. That's exactly the issue I had to deal with all the time. In Washington, there are some people who never talk about government regulation without saying job-killing regulation. Of course, it's not really based on any empirical evidence. And I write about this. I've written a couple of books on science and public health. And one book, which is called Doubt is Their Product, I tell the story of the vinyl chloride standard that OSHA put out in the 70s. 
Violent Florida's been in the news recently. It, it was the gas that was burned in East Palestine. Oh, yeah. We did an episode on East Palestine. Yeah, and it causes cancer. And it was first discovered in a chemical plant in the 70s in Kentucky, where I think five workers were discovered to have a very rare liver cancer. which It was obviously caused by vinyl chloride monomer. It's the material that's used to make polyvinyl chloride. OSHA moved quickly to issue a standard because it was causing cancer. The plastics industry said, you know, it's medically unnecessary, technologically impossible to do, and it's going to kill 2 million jobs. We're not going to be able to make, you know, shower curtains and records anymore. It was just nonsense. But OSHA moved forward. They issued a standard that greatly reduced exposure over the objections of the plastics industry. And within a year, the headline in Chemical Week was PVC out of jeopardy into jubilation. So what I tell people is it's not that OSHA standards don't kill jobs. OSHA standards stop jobs from killing workers. So if we're being realistic, massive change to the system won't be happening anytime soon. How can workers take action now? Look, the first thing, obviously, is unionized workers have certain protections and they need to work with their employers and either demand or ask, but somehow to get the three immediate things around heat that we talk about are water, rest, and shade. Every employer should be thinking about, okay, if it's going to be hot, how are we going to deal with that? And that's true for employers indoors and outdoors, because right now we have warehouses that are not air-conditioned, that the temperatures are getting very hot. Look, the um, temperatures in the back of UPS trucks were measured at 140 degrees. And so the Teamsters made that a very big issue in their negotiations with UPS, and were able to get some concessions, and UPS committed to buying air conditioning for some of the trucks. The other thing, just two other components, if people are out there thinking about these questions, are acclimatization is really important. The beginning of a heat wave is the most dangerous time. People's bodies are not used to the hot temperature, so you have to do a little bit less work, get more breaks at the beginning of that. And you have to know about what you're going to do in an emergency. If someone starts feeling woozy or a headache, you know, what are you going to do? Where's the nearest hospital? How are you going to give people liquids? Things like that. So there's a lot that can be done to make sure people are safe. We're reaching the end of the summer. Hopefully we won't see too much of this, but um, this is something that every employer has to think about and every worker has to be aware of right now. Before we let you go, is there anything else that listeners should know? You know, I think this basic point, though, that workers have the right to have a safe workplace. They should be able to go home at the end of the day in the same condition they arrived is something we all have to work on. And that really needs to be a national priority. And um, we have to just keep working at that. David Michaels, thank you so much for joining us. That's all for us today. Thank you to Jake Frederico and David Michaels for joining us. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Serena Solon and Colleen Barrett fact-checked it. Our editorial director is A.M. Hall. And I'm your host, John Glenn Hill. This podcast is part of Vox, which doesn't have a paywall. Help us keep it that way by going to vox.com give. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. 
Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.